what will you have? You are now tuned in to Marcus Rays. You just sat back and ready to play. Let me take your thoughts far, far away. Now let's hear what Darvetta has to say. We would be honored if you would join us. Yo, Star Wars family, it's your pal Kyle, dropping in to deliver you the ultimate audio experience, Star Wars Audio Archives. Brace yourself for an amazing part that will make your heart race and your soul dance like a twilic in a cantina. We're about to embark on a journey that will ignite your inner rebel and make you feel like a Jedi rock star. Are you ready to get started? Then let's get to it. On a good day, Ulavi'i didn't talk to anyone. He just listened. That was what he was good at. In his time off, he would sit in his quarters and replay the week's recordings, scanning whole conversations for anything important. Important things were happening all the time on Coruscant, of course, but isolating items of greatest significance was a critical part of his job, and he liked to think that he was very good at it. Ulo was an imperial informer in the Republic Senate. He bore that responsibility with pride. On a bad day, he was thrust out of the shadows and into the light. The trouble with playing a part was that sometimes Ula had to actually play it. As a senior assistant to Supreme Commander Stantors, Ula was often called upon to take notes, conduct research, and offer advice. All of this placed him in a unique position to assist the Empire in its mission to retake the galaxy. But at the same time, he was forced to perform two demanding jobs at once. On bad days, his head ached so much that it felt like it would crack open, spilling all his secrets out onto the floor. The day he heard about the Cinzia was a very bad day indeed. The Supreme Commander had had a busy morning. Countless visitors, endless supplicants, the eternal buzzing of his comlink. Ula didn't know how he stood it. Then came the request from Grand Master Satil Shan for an audience throwing the Supreme Commander's schedule completely out of whack. "'Can't you put her off?' Stantors asked his secretary with a look that signaled annoyance. The longer Ula occupied his role, the better he was getting at understanding the expressions of aliens, even noseless, moon-faced duros like this one. "'She was here only an hour ago.' "'She says it's important.' "'All right, all right, send her in.' Ula had never formally met the Jedi Grandmaster before. He regarded the Jedi with suspicion and dislike, and not just because they were the Emperor's enemy. She strode into the palatial office and offered the Supreme Commander a bow of respect. With a finely boned face and grey-streaked hair, she was not a tall woman, but the position she occupied in the Republic hierarchy was considerable. Stantor stood and offered a nod that seemed much slighter in comparison with hers. Like Ula, he didn't approve of Jedi, but his reasons had nothing to do with philosophy. Many in the Republic placed the blame for the Empire's ascendance firmly on the Jedi Council's collective shoulders. The Treaty of Coruscant had wrenched the galactic capital out of the Emperor's control once more, but only at great cost to the Republic and its allies, and at terrible loss of face. The Council's retreat to Tython hadn't helped. How can I help you, Master Sean? He asked in gruff basic. I've received a report from my Padawan of a possible bounty hunter loose in the old district, she said in measured tones. Running riot among the criminal classes, apparently. 
That's a minor issue. Why bring it to me? Your brief is restoring security on Coruscant. Furthermore, the bounty hunter is a Mandalorian. Ula didn't need to read minds to know what Stantors was thinking now. A Mandalorian blockade of the Hydean Way trade route in the last decades of the Great War had crippled the Republic and very nearly led to its ruin. Since his defeat, Mandalore had lost many of his raiders to the gladiatorial pit fights on Geonosis. But Ula wasn't the only person on Coruscant who knew that Imperial operatives had been behind the anti-Republic action and that he was still looking for a fight. If he was considering making a move on Coruscant itself, it had to be addressed immediately. What can you tell me about him? His name is Dal Striver. He's looking for information regarding a woman, Lima Zandret, and something called Sinzia. Ula's ears pricked up at the latter name. He had heard that recently. Where exactly? The Supreme Commander was performing the same mental search. A report, he mused, drumming his long fingers on the desk. Something from SIS, I'm sure. Perhaps you should ask them about it. A hint of Grandmaster Satil Shan's true authority appeared in her voice. I am to contact Tython immediately regarding our earlier discussions. General Garza impressed upon me the urgency and secrecy of the matter. I cannot afford to be delayed any further. Stantor's waxy skin turned a deep purple. He didn't like the Republic's own policies being used against him. Ula hoped for a momentary loss of control, that something might slip about the nature of those earlier meetings. Try as he might, he could learn nothing about them, although he was certain they were of grave importance to his masters on Dramond Koss. Unfortunately, Stantor's self-control was a match for his temper. I haven't got time to investigate every minor disruption, the Supreme Commander fumed. Ula, look into it, will you? Ula jumped at the mention of his name. Sir? Follow up on this incident for Master Sean. Report to both of us when you find something. If you find something. The last was directed at the Grand Master with a generous amount of ill feeling. Of course, sir, said Ula hoping that the concession was simply a ruse to get the Grand Master off Stantor's back. Thank you, Ula, Supreme Commander. I'm most grateful. With that, Satil Shan swept from the room, watched resentfully by Stantor's and his staff. Every department in the Republic was overstretched and understaffed. The last thing anyone wanted was the Jedi sticking their nose in, finding fault, and handing over more work. Ula's job wasn't to sow dissent, but sometimes he wished it was. Dissent practically sowed itself on cursed Coruscant, where the sky was the same heavy gray as its pedwalks, and the pockmarks of war still scarred its artificial face. The Supreme Commander resumed his seat with a heavy sigh. <sighs> All right, Ula, you better get started. But, sir, Ula said, surely you don't... I mean, I thought... No, we better do exactly as I said. Just in case it does turn out to be important. No sweeping anything aside when Mandalorians are involved. If that rabble of troublemakers is helping the Empire make another move on Coruscant, we need to know about it. But don't spend too much time on it, eh? The rest of the galaxy won't wait. 
Ula inclined his head in frustrated obedience. He was dismayed that the Grandmaster's minor request was removing him from the Supreme Commander's presence. How was he going to gather the intelligence he needed now? This pointless quest could cost him valuable data. There was no use arguing, and perhaps some benefit to complying, too. Mandalorians weren't any kind of rabble. Their vast numbers of individual clans, each available for hire to the highest bidder, added up to a potent fighting force capable of shifting the balance of power in a major battle, as the Republic had already learned to its cost. The Empire had given the Mandalorians the means of returning to the galaxy and gaining revenge on their enemies, but there was no loyalty lingering between the two sides. With the signing of the Treaty of Coruscant, Emperor and Mandalore had gone their separate ways. It was worth pursuing this lead, he told himself, even if an hour or two's research proved that someone had been chasing its shadows and business returned to usual afterward. It would be out of character, too, to do otherwise. Ula Vee, the amenable functionary, always did as he was told. That was how he had gained such intimate access to the Supreme Commander's affairs. With a brisk bow, he smoothed the already impeccable front of his uniform as he left the office and headed for the headquarters of his opposite number in the Republic. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Strategic Information Systems didn't advertise its offices in the Hiram Complex, but anyone with any seniority in the administration knew where they were. Ula had had reason to visit only once before, while covering for a cipher agent, and he'd made a point of avoiding it ever since. The company of other intelligence operatives bothered him, no matter whose side they were on. They were all of the same breed, more or less. Observant, quick-thinking used to seeing or imagining deception all around them. Creatures of few words, they gave little away, and their eyes were as pointed as the needles of an interrogator droid. Ula masked his nervousness behind a facade of calm as he entered the spacious, cultured atrium. The secretary smiled warmly at him. Can I help you, sir? Ula V.E., advisor to Supreme Commander Stantors. His voice print was checked, naturally, but unobtrusively. The secretary waved him through. He was met in a conference room by an unreadable Ithorian, possibly female, dressed in simple black robes bearing no name tags or insignia. You're an epicanthix, she said bluntly from both of her mouths. As conversation starters, it was a disconcerting one. Most people failed to notice that he wasn't fully human. He refused to give her the advantage. Supreme Commander Stantors requests information, he said. Why doesn't he follow the usual channels? We need an answer quickly, he said, thinking, so I can get back to my real job. Both of them. Ask, she said. He gave her the Mandalorian's name and the other names associated with the case. The Ithorian produced a data pad from beneath her robes and tapped at it with one long slender finger. Apart from that digit, no part of her body moved. 
Ula waited with no outward sign of impatience, wondering how the creature breathed. A ship registered to Douth Driver landed on Coruscant two standard days ago. It left an hour ago. What was the name and class of the ship? First Blood, a modified Kuat D7. Destination? Unknown. Tell me about Lima Sandrit. We have no record of that name. Nothing at all? Once, information flowed freely across the galaxy, ebbing and flowing as readily as light itself. We prided ourselves on the ease with which we knew all things. Then, the Empire came, casting a shadow across the Republic, and the constant shine of knowledge was shattered. Much we would know now comes sluggishly and in incomplete forms. Our task is as much to reconstruct as to gather. That's a no, then, said Ula testily. He was very aware of the state of information in the galaxy, and he didn't like the Empire being blamed for it. From his point of view, the Republic had never gotten it right, and only the establishment of Imperial rule would enable the right and correct flow of data to everyone. He wasn't getting very far with the alien, but he had one question left. What about the third name? Cynthia? We have three appearances, two from the Senate and one from an allied spy network. Both point to the same source. More spies, Ula thought with distaste. He hated that word. Who are the senators? Bimisari in the Hala sector and Sneeve in the Castellar sector. Can you tell me their source? Readily. There are no security warnings attached to this subject. The Ithorian tapped again. Both senators and the spy network report on an unusual auction in hot space. Tenders have been called for. Where does the name Cynthia fit in? It appears to be a vessel of some kind. Anything else? Speculation varies among the three priorities. I can offer you no hard facts. Ula thought quickly to himself. So Dow Striver was real, and the Cynthia too. But what was one doing on Coruscant while the other was in hut space? How did the greed of a species of malignant criminals connect them? Thank you, he said. You've been some help to us. The Ithorian walked him back to the atrium and left him there. The secretary waved cheerfully as he left. A film of sweat covered Ula from head to foot. It could have gone much worse, he told himself, if they had only known what he really was. Ula had a contact in the office of the senator from Vimisarian. He made an appointment by Comlink as he walked. With luck, he hoped, this whole thing could be wrapped up before day's end and life would return to normal. Oh, I know exactly what you're talking about, breezed Hunet Lebec over a pot of traditional ale. He had insisted on meeting for lunch, and Ula had found it impossible to talk him out of it. Ula didn't like eating in public. It was one of the things he preferred to keep to himself, without worrying about what other people thought. Go on, then, he said, moving scraps of yacht bean fry up around his plate. Tell me everything. Lebec had finished eating long ago, and was on to his second pot. That made him even more loquacious than normal. Which wasn't a bad thing. Ula needed him to talk. 
The senator's offices on Bimasari received a communique from Tassar Barish seven days ago. Do you know who she is? A member of the Barish cartel, I presume. Only the head, the matriarch. She has close ties to the Empire, so we keep an eye on her as best we can. There's nothing we can do about the smuggling, but open slavery is something we try to crack down on. Ula nodded. Bimasari's home sector butted directly on hot space, so the behavior of the cartels could have a hugely destabilizing effect on the local economy. Go on. The communique was a pitch, really, and a fairly unsubtle one at that. Barish was attempting to interest us in something one of her pirates had found in the outer rim. Information, apparently, and an unspecified artifact. She didn't say where they had come from, exactly. Way out past Rin was the only hint she dropped. We didn't pay it much heed at first, naturally. Why, naturally? Well, we received dozens of offers from the huts every day. Most are scams, some are traps. All are full of lies. Not so different from what we receive from the Resource Management Council, but at least that's supposed to be on our side. Lebec toasted his own cynical witticism and ordered another drink. So you ignored the communique? Ula prompted. And that normally would have been the end of it. Except another one arrived, and then another. Each adding a little to the story, until eventually we had to pay attention. It was quite a clever campaign, actually. We wouldn't have accepted it if it had arrived all at once. But doled out bit by bit, letting each piece of the puzzle fall into place before offering us the next one. Eventually it was enough to get even the senator himself interested. In what, exactly? The Huts found a ship, the Shinzia. There was something inside it, apparently. An artifact they're trying to sell. But that's not the most important thing. What really makes this interesting is where the ship came from. Ula was getting tired of playing games. Just tell me, will you? I can't. That information is what the Huts are selling. Lebec leaned forward. We've been trying to generate interest in the Senate. Support is spreading for an official response, but not fast enough. The auction is in a few days' time, and I'm afraid we'll miss out. Lebec's voice lowered until it was barely audible over the background noise. How would you like to be the one to hand the Republic a previously unknown, resource-rich world right for the picking? Ula kept his expression neutral. So that was what the fuss was about. New worlds weren't especially hard to come by, but anything steeped in minerals or biosphere was fiercely contested between the Empire and the Republic. If the Huts had stumbled across the location of one such world, there was indeed a real chance to profit from the knowledge. Are you sure it's real? Not another scam? He asked Lebec. As sure as we can be. Lebec said lightly, taking his third pot from the waiter and knocking back a hefty swallow. Supreme Chancellor Generous would authorize a bidding party from Bimisari, I'm sure. If we could only get word to him. Do you think you can help? And there it was. The appeal for assistance in shoring up local politics. Hollis Sector wanted not only to be the ones who brought a new world to the Republic's attention, but access to the Chancellor's coffers as well. A small percentage would be skimmed off the top to cover administration expenses, no doubt, providing more ale for the likes of Hunet Lebec and his ilk. 
Thus the Republic doomed itself and all it purported to represent. Ula suppressed his ideological revulsion. I'll bring it to Supreme Commander Stantor's attention, he said. And that was the truth. He had no choice now. If he returned with nothing, and two days later the information did reach the Supreme Chancellor's ears from another source, well, it wouldn't pay to be diminished in Stantor's eyes. Maintaining that contact was paramount. But that wouldn't stop him from spreading the information elsewhere first. I owe you, said Lebec, as Ula paid the bill and took his leave. That was the best way to leave an informant in one's debt. Ula's coffers, like the Republic's, weren't limitless, but they contained enough credits to grease the path to Imperial domination. Just a little. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Many means existed of getting secret transmissions off Coruscant. One could stash an antenna on a little used building and broadcast when official satellites were out of range. One could pay a lowlife to take a recording to orbit, there to send the message farther by more ordinary means. One could employ a code of such baroque complexity that the transmission resembled layers of noise upon noise with no significant features. Ula believed that the best way to arouse suspicion was to go too far out of his way to avoid it. So his preferred method of contacting his superiors was to place a call to Panatha, the planet of his birth, leave a message for his mother, and wait for the reply to come to him. That way, the burden of guilt was shifted elsewhere. It was much easier to brush off receiving an illicit communication, one possibly misplaced, than the accusation of making one. After notifying the Supreme Commander that he was hot on the case, he went immediately to his austere quarters and sent two signals. Ula lived in Minari Heights, near his work in the Senate District, while at the same time close enough to the Eastport docking facility to make a quick getaway if he needed to. He had stashes of documents, credits, and weapons in several locations between home and the spaceport. He also had a secondary apartment, little more than a closet, really, in case he needed somewhere to hide for a while. He wasn't one for taking chances. The illusion of innocence he had wrapped around himself could be all too easily dispelled. He had seen it happen before. One mistake was all it took. The bleep of his comlink broke him out of his nervous reverie in which he had spent the last hour. The call was on its way in response to the first of his signals. He readied himself by straightening his uniform for the dozenth time and taking position in front of his hollow projector. This was the part of his job he liked the least. A ghostly image appeared before him, flickering blue with static. There was little more than a hint of a face, and the voice was both genderless and specieless. Ula had no idea whom he spoke to on distant Dramond Koss. Report, said Watcher 3. Ula summed up everything he had learned in as few words as possible. A ship from an unaffiliated resource-rich world in the Outer Rim had been captured by the Huts who were offering information about it to the highest bidder. 
That same ship was the object of a search by a Mandalorian, Douse Driver. Another name, Lima Zandrid, was implicated. The origins of the ship were unknown, as was its cargo, the mysterious object Lebec had alluded to. Both were up for auction. When he finished, the noisy line crackled and fizzed for almost half a minute before Watcher 3 responded. Very good. This is a matter of concern to the Minister. Maintain a close watch and report all developments. Yes, sir. Dismissed. The transmission ended, and Ula sagged with relief. For all he knew, Watcher 3 was a perfectly ordinary person, just another functionary like him. But there was something about that hollow voice that made him feel utterly unworthy. Bad enough that he wasn't fully human, but worse even than that, he felt dirty, unclean, vile for no reason at all. Watcher 3 made him feel like he did when he talked to a Sith. His comlink buzzed again. He prepared himself again, with very different reasons to feel nervous. Whereas the last call had come through perfectly official channels from the Ministry of Intelligence, this one had a very different purpose and bore risks of its own. This time, when the hollow projector stirred, it revealed a perfectly clear image of a woman who still struck Ula as looking entirely too young for the role she played in the Imperial administration. Hello, Ula. How nice to hear from you again. To what do I owe the pleasure? Ula swallowed. Shulis Kamar's smile seemed perfectly sincere, and Ula had no reason to believe it otherwise. The current Minister of Logistics was the same age as him and shared his passionate belief that the Empire was a civilizing force to be reckoned with. They had discussed this subject at length during a shuttle flight from Drummond Koss, the one time he had visited the Imperial Capital World. He had been attending a briefing for members who hadn't qualified to be cipher agents, but were still considered useful to the intelligence arm. She was on her way to be promoted to lieutenant. Since then, her rise had been meteoric, while he remained essentially nowhere. I have something for you, he told her. A world ripe for annexation, discovered by the Huts. I've heard something about this already. No one knows where it is, and we won't until we pay up. Do you have anything to add, Ula? He deflated slightly, so he wasn't the first to make a report. Not yet, Minister, but I'm well-placed to follow it up and hope to learn more soon. That would be to the benefit of us all, Ula, she said with another smile. Why did you call me about it? Because it's the opportunity we've been waiting for, he said, feeling his pulse thudding in his neck. This was as dangerous a territory now as it had ever been. We don't need fanatics to rule a galaxy. We just need proper governance and administration. Rules, laws, discipline. When you see those lunatics wreaking havoc on the worlds out here, Jedi and Sith alike, I have to ask what benefit they bring. He used her own word deliberately. There wouldn't be a war at all without them stirring things up. I remember this, Ula, she said with patience that cut through him like a lightsaber. I understand your views, but there's nothing I can do. All we need is just one world. A strong world capable of defending itself, on which the Imperial citizens could thrive without fear or oppression. The world you've heard of belongs rightfully to the Emperor. 
I cannot claim it for myself. But you're the Minister of Logistics now. The entire Imperial bureaucracy is yours. She rebuffed him gently, as she always did. It is the Emperor's, as it should be. I am his instrument, and I would not betray his trust. I would never ask you to do that. I know, Rula. You are as loyal as I am, and you mean well. But I fear that what you ask is impossible. He took pains never to push their friendship too far, but he was unable to hide his disappointment. What will it take to change your mind, Minister? When you have the location of the world, talk to me again. He knew all too well that betraying the Republic, while at the same time trying to convince a senior minister to increase the influence of ordinary people in their relations with the Sith ruling class, could bring his entire world to ruin. Thank you, Minister, he said. You're kind to indulge me. It's neither kindness, Ula, nor an indulgence. You may call me any time. She ended the transmission, and this time Ula didn't sag. He already felt fully deflated, insignificant. Even if Watcher 3 did describe his mission of being one of significance to the Emperor himself, he felt like a grain of sand buffeted by powerful ocean currents. No matter which shore he landed upon, the waves pounded him harder than ever. Maintain a close watch and report all developments. That he could do. Exhausted from his day of talking, he filed a written report for Supreme Commander Stantors. Then he undressed and lay on his hard bed and waited for dawn. Lorin Moxla stood in the Senate Gardens on a busy thoroughfare lined with benches. It was early evening, and the sky was full of lights. She felt uncomfortably exposed, and was struck by how used she'd become to the old districts. Only a few months had passed since she'd been drummed out of Black Star Squad, and already the hazy sky of the upper levels looked too large, the people too refined, the droids too clean, and the buildings too new. Give her a year, she thought, and she'd be completely at one with the dregs of society. Her feeling of alienation was only confirmed when a quartet of Senate security officers strode by. Three men, Twilik, Zabrik, and Human, and a stocky Nikto woman. The SSOs caught sight of her and approached. Are you lost? rumbled the Twilik. You look like you've been pulled backward through a sarlacc. Twice! <laughs> the Nikto woman chittered, not unkindly. Lorin wanted to walk away. They were speaking to her soldier to soldier, using familiar bantering tones, but her heart wasn't in it. Thanks, guys, she said. I'm okay, and I won't be here long. She was waiting for Shigar to return from talking to Satil Shan, and this was where she had said they should meet. No worries, said the human with a wink. Just try not to frighten anyone. Wait, said the Zabrak, peering at her. Do I know you? I don't think so, she said. Yeah, I do, he said. Your toxic Moxla, the Kifar who snitched on Sergeant Dunbar. Lorin felt the blood rising to her head. It's none of your business. Oh, yeah? I've got a cousin in Special Forces who disagree, said the Zabrak right into her face. She held his stare, fighting the urge to retreat or to headbutt him. 
one swift, solid lunge that might cut her forehead to the bone on his horns, but would certainly lay him out cold. But then she'd have a probable afraid charge to wear afterward. The gardens were full of witnesses, fine of standing witnesses, who didn't sleep in an abandoned warehouse and hand-weld their clothes from cast-off scrap. Easy, sis, said the Twilik to the Zabrak. You've had one too many fizzbrews over lunch again. When did you hear from your cousin anyway? Added the Nikto woman, taking his arm and guiding him firmly away. Last I heard, he owed you money. The human cast Lorin an apologetic look as the trio led their drunk friend away. But not before he could call over his shoulder. Crawl back into your hole, toxic moxla. We don't want your kind up here. Lorin watched the Zabrak go with her face burning hot. How did such a lout ever get into the SSO? let alone know someone in special forces. It didn't seem possible. But mixed with her outrage was a feeling of deep shame. Yes, she had snitched on her commanding officer. Yes, she was play-acting at being a soldier in a poorly made costume. But neither came lightly to her. She had her reasons. Lorin turned to face the distant Jedi Temple. Abandoned in ruins and sealed off ever since the sacking of Coruscant was an ominous, shadowy presence against the lights of the sky lanes and skyscrapers, like fate ever present. Shigar waited for five minutes before his master appeared as though out of nowhere, right by his side. He never heard her coming, but had learned at least not to be as startled as in the early days of his apprenticeship. That, he assumed, was the heart of this particular lesson. Some things could never be anticipated, but he could control the way he reacted to them. They stood together for a moment in the empty cloisters, staring up at the looming silver cylinder that was the Galactic Justice Center. Its lights burned brightly and never flickered once. You've put something in motion, Shigar, she said. Do you see this in the future, Master? The foresight of Grandmaster Satil Shan was legendary and never wrong. She shook her head. Not this time. I received this a moment ago from Supreme Commander Stantors. She passed Shigar a datapad, and he read the packet of information displayed there twice. It contained everything uncovered about Dao Striver, Lima Zandret, and the Sinzia in the previous hours. Someone had been busy, he thought. The Huts certainly recognize an opportunity when they see one, he said wrapping the new data around everything he'd already gleaned about the Mandalorian, the Black Sun, and the attack on Lorin Moxla. The Sinzia gives Tassar Barish two plays for the price of one, his master said. To the administrations of the Republic and the Empire, the primary concern is the ship's origin. Where it came from matters much more than its purpose or what it contained. We all know that the Republic is desperate for resources, and any new world will aid its cause. It goes without saying that Supreme Commander Stantors will pursue this matter further on that ground alone. From the point of view of the Jedi Council, however, the situation is precisely reversed. The Huts are auctioning more than just information. There's the cargo of the ship to consider, too. The object they're selling presumably has some recognizable value, but as yet we do not know what it is. It could be anything. We can't ignore the possibility that they have stumbled upon something critical to the Jedi Order, 
An artifact, perhaps, or a weapon. Many are spoken of in ancient records, but are yet unaccounted for. Just one might make a difference in the war against the Emperor. It could be a Sith artifact, he said, knowing full well that the forces of the enemy had their own arsenals, as ancient as the Jedi Orders. That's also a possibility. We must therefore do everything in our power to ensure that this thing the Huts have, whatever it is, does not fall into the wrong hands. It's already in the wrong hands, he said. That's true. But Asaparish only recognizes one side, her own. I have no fears of her using this fine directly against us. Still, we need to know more about it, and soon. That's where you come in, Shigar. Shigar studied his master's face. He'd felt that the conversation was more than idle chat, but he hadn't expected an active role in the situation. I will do anything you wish, master. You will go to the court of Tassar Barish and uncover everything you can about the Sinzia and its contents. You are to travel incognito in order to minimize our apparent interest in the sale. You will report what you find to me directly, and I will decide what to do with that information. You will leave this evening. Her voice was brisk and matter-of-fact, belying the significance of her words. This was a major assignment, cutting through the thick of a complex political knot. Were he to fail, it would reflect badly on the Jedi Order, and perhaps hinder the entire war effort. The responsibility was considerable. Coming so soon after his disappointment of that morning, however, it was impossible to silence a nagging, doubtful voice. Are you sure I'm the right choice? He asked, dragging the words out as though they were made of lead. After all, the Council believes me unfit for the trials. There must be someone else better qualified who can do this for you. Are you telling me you don't want to go, Shigar? That you're not ready? He bowed his head to hide his mingled pride and uncertainty. I trust your judgment, Master. Better than my own. Good, because I believe my reasoning is sound. Your face is unknown on Hutter. You will therefore find it easier to pass unnoticed. And I have faith in you. Remember that. I am certain that this is the path laid down for you. So you have seen something? He tried to read her expression in the flickering lights of the city. She could have been amused, concerned, or completely blank. It was hard to tell. Perhaps all three. He swore to himself that he would make her proud. What about the situation here? The gangs, the poverty. That's the responsibility of the local authorities, she said, fixing him with a firm stare. They are doing their best. He heard the warning in her voice. The Jedi's role in the galaxy led them outward, to Tython. He had been told many times before that the Republic's many social problems should not be his, even if this time Mandalorians were involved. Until Mandalore declared himself a particular enemy of someone, he could be considered more or less neutral. Yes, Master. Go now. There's a shuttle waiting for you. Shigar bowed and went to walk away. Be kind, Shigar, his master added. Some roads are harder than yours have been. When he turned back, Satil Shan was gone, vanished into the night as though she had never been there at all.
With relief, Lorin saw Shigar striding along the thoroughfare toward her. He had been gone less than half an hour, but it felt much longer than that. After the encounter with the Senate security officers, she had spoken to no one and avoided catching anyone's eyes, feeling more out of place than ever. When he returned, she promised herself, and when he had finished assuring her that he had spoken to his master about the situation down below, and she would do something about it, Lorin could vanish back down her hole again, just as the Zabrak had advised her to. It wasn't that she thought the Zabrak was right. On the contrary, she just didn't know where to fit in anymore up here. At least she had something to do in the old districts. Ever since her discharge, she had committed herself to protecting the weak and disenfranchised, those whom even the Justicars ignored, to the extent her meager resources allowed. Unlike the Justicars, she was interested in something more important than territory. And if that meant working alone, so be it. How did it go? She asked Shigar when he reached her. Well, I think. Are you sure about that? She didn't know him well enough to be able to tell what troubled him, but he didn't seem remotely content. His brow was knuckled, and the blue chevrons on his cheeks were twisted out of shape by the clenched muscles beneath. Perhaps the reassurance she'd been hoping for wasn't coming after all. I have to go somewhere, he said. Will you walk with me part of the way? Sure. Where are we going? Eastport. I thought you only just got to Coruscant. That's right. He glanced at her, as though surprised that she had remembered. I've been traveling all my life, since Master Satil took me on anyway. They walked at an easy pace through the temperate night. A light breeze ran its fingers through her short hair, and she was reminded of one good thing about life topside. Weather. The last time anything had rained on her was when a sewage line had burst two levels up. I haven't seen another Kifar for years, she said to break the silence. Were you on Kifu during the annexation? No. Master Tengrove, the Jedi watchman of that sector, found me the year before. I was on Dantooine when it happened, helping my master dig through some ruins. Find anything interesting? I don't remember. He glanced at her again. What about you? The annexation, I mean. I was there. Although I don't remember it clearly. I was too young. My parents slipped me into a shuttle and got me off-world before the worst of it hit. The shuttle took me to Abrogado Ray, where a host family adopted me. They had taken on lots of kids after the Treaty of Coruscant, but there was always space for another. It was a madhouse. What happened to your parents? They died in prison on Kifex. I'm sorry he said. Don't be. It's just more ancient history. What about yours? Dead, too. From a vacuum seal accident on a Frisian shuttle, though. Nothing to do with the annexation. They walked in silence for a while again, he looking fixedly ahead, and she down at her booted feet. She felt the usual mixture of relief and sorrow whenever the matter of her parents' sacrifice came up. She hadn't known it at the time, but she had worked out later how much her narrow escape had cost them. With Imperial warships crowding their home planet, they must have bribed an Imperial gunner to overlook an escaping shuttle. Plus the shuttle pilot and who knew how many spaceport guards. They'd given up everything just to save her. And how had she repaid them? I have to go to Hutta, he finally said. Why? One of the cartels has discovered something. I need to find out what it is.
Is this connected to that Mandalorian? Seems so. But he's off Coruscant now, and won't be bothering you again. Are you sure he won't come back? As sure as I can be. Well, that's something. She said with more satisfaction than she actually felt. Now that she had accomplished everything she'd set out to do that day, she could reasonably retreat to her sanctuary in the old districts and go back to doing what she did best. The trouble was, she wasn't quite ready to cast free of Shigar Kanshi. He reminded her of what it was like to be given a new mission. Objectives, resources, constraints, deadlines. She missed the days when everything was sharply defined and unambiguous. Ever been to Hutta before? She asked him. No, not the surface. It's vile and dangerous. I was there on a covert op two years ago. Very nearly didn't get out again. You've done covert work? More than I care to think about. She hadn't told him about special forces and the Black Stars. As far as Shigar knew, she was just an ordinary trooper, taking a temporary break from duty. What about slicing? He asked her, visibly picking up. Do they teach you that kind of thing, too? The basics. I learned a whole lot more from a girl called Kixie when I arrived here. Now I could do it in my sleep. And you're familiar with some of the rougher gangs that run around the underworld. You'd even pass for one of them with a bit of a wash. Hey, watch it! She threw a punch at his shoulder, which he dodged with surprising ease. He stopped walking, not joking around at all, and they stood facing each other. You could come with me, he said as though the idea had just occurred to him. To Huda, I mean. I thought you'd never ask, she said. He didn't laugh. I'm serious. You just implied I'd need a guide there, and I could certainly use the help. It's a big job. Will you tell me what we'd be looking for? I don't like being left in the dark, ever. I don't know what it is myself. Not yet. I know as little about it as you do. Well... She pretended to think about it, although she'd worked out her answer while he had been asking about her covert ops qualifications, just like he had been wanting to ask her ever since he finished talking with his master. That was what he'd had trouble spitting out this whole time. She could see it perfectly now. He didn't want to ask her outright for fear of putting her on the defensive, and maybe he imagined that she didn't want to ask him for fear of looking desperate. This way, it looked like they were coming up with the idea together. No one needed to be rescued. They were a team. His transparency both amused her and warmed her to him. She had no choice but to go to Hata, if only to save him from what was waiting for him there. Sure, the Sith were hard work, but the Huts would eat him alive if they captured him in this state. All right, she said, but one condition. What's that? You stop thinking that you're doing me a favor. He flushed. All right. And you buy me a proper meal. I've been living on concentrates for weeks. That's two favors. Think of that last one as good troop management. You don't want me losing my concentration on the job, do you? I guess not. He smiled in a way that made him look even younger than he was. Come on, Moxla. We're not getting any closer just standing here. She sloppily saluted. They strode off into the night, and within three paces... Their steps had unconsciously fallen into time. Black on black and a hint of bright steel. 
The twelve lords of the Emperor's Dark Council stared at Eldon Axe and her master with the combined force of a glacial avalanche. And so you see, my lords, Darth Kratos concluded, how this situation can be advanced by the application of swift and appropriate action. The right people in the right place at the right time. My apprentice and I are the people. The place is Hutta. The time to strike is right now. They were standing in a recessed section of the floor, surrounded by the Dark Council. Twelve monstrous visages gazed down at them, some exposed and scarred, others hidden by masks, all radiating cool and constant hate. These were the Emperor's confidants, his most prized servants. They alone saw his face, and now they were seeing axes. She felt her master's fear for the first time, and it thrilled her. Spare us the rhetoric, Darth Kratos, said one of the Dark Lords, a being that might once have been a woman, but whose face now was little more than a sexless skeleton. We will not be moved by speeches. What is it exactly that you want? added another, his voice a high-pitched stiletto issuing from a featureless iron mask. Tell us your plans. My apprentice will infiltrate the court of Tassar Barish, Darth Kratos said, in order to steal the information from the huts. I will wait off-world. When she is succeeded, I will proceed to the location of the colony and begin its annexation to the continued glory of the Empire. He bowed low, and Axe was filled with contempt. A simple plan, said another of the Dark Lords. Darth Howell had teeth sharpened to points, and his face was slashed by random patterns of straight lines. I admire its directness. We do not negotiate with criminals. Tata Barish has been of use to us, said another. It would not be wise to anger her. My apprentice will be circumspect, Darth Kratos assured them. She is unknown to them. They will not detect her. And the annexation itself? How will you facilitate this? You cannot have sufficient resources of your own to capture an entire world. No, my lords. I will require at least a division to quash any resistance. An entire division? Dry mutterings circulated around the ring of Dark Lords. You ask too much. Do you expect significant resistance? Yes, Darth Howell. Here, Axe's master hesitated. The one point he had downplayed during his summary was at last being dragged into view. The colony was founded by fugitives from the Empire. What kind of fugitives? He outlined everything they had uncovered about Lima Zandret, while the Council listened in chilly silence. When he described the connection between Zandret and Axe, all eyes turned to her. She did her best to stare right back, although it caused her physical pain at the back of her eye sockets. It was like meeting the gaze of a black hole. The Mandalorian let the daughter of the fugitives live, said Darth Howell when the account was finished. Can you be sure there is no connection between them? I have examined her thoroughly. She feels no sympathy for the ones we seek. 
What say you, girl? Tell me what you remember of your mother. Axe forced her tongue to unfreeze. She'd been spoken to, so she must reply. That was how it worked. I remember nothing, my lord. That is both a curse and a blessing. Explain. My lack of memory means that I can offer no clue as to the whereabouts of the fugitives. That is a curse, because it would be simplest to avoid dealing with the huts altogether. But if I did remember, my feelings might indeed be clouded, and you would be right to mistrust me. I offer you my assurance that I am loyal, and that the huts can be dealt with. She felt a pressure on her mind, as though a mountain were leaning on it. You are confident, said Darth Howell. Perhaps overconfident, but you are not lying. Thank you, my lord. She bowed deeply. That doesn't mean, however, that we can trust you. She straightened. If I may address the council once more, there is something I wish to say. Speak, Darth Howell instructed her. Darth Kratos shot her a warning glance, but she ignored him. This mission is paramount, and not just because of the world we stand to gain. There is something my master has not raised with you, and it concerns the actions of the Mandalorian Dao's driver. His master was once an ally of the Empire, but in recent years, Mandalore has been distant, threatening even. Yet this one knew my history, knew of my biological connection to Lima Zandrit, knew where to find me. He knew all these things, how? I believe that finding him and obtaining an answer to this question is critical to the security of the Empire. That provoked another round of whispering. A Mandalorian spy in the Imperial administration? Unthinkable, yet potentially disastrous if it was true. It could signal the turning of hostile Mandalorian eyes onto the Empire. Whole chains of command would need to be scrutinized. Purges would be required. Heads would roll. Perhaps even the Minister of Intelligences. The turmoil could be tremendous. Darth Kratos stared at her with lips pressed so tightly together he might have been making diamonds out of his teeth. Then, unexpectedly, Darth Howell began to laugh. It was an awful sound, full of bile and rot and cruelty, and it punctured the tension like a dagger. It echoed through the council chamber like the sound of breaking glass, bringing all else to silence. Eldon Axe, he said when his malignant mirth subsided. You do not fool me. The blood in Axe's veins turned to ice. I swear, my lord. Do not interrupt. The whip crack of command was backed up by the full power of the force. I know a liar when I meet one. Axe could not move. She could only stare in horror, wondering what had gone wrong. You speak of infiltrators in the Empire, of Mandalorian infiltration, her accuser went on. But I see you clearly, Eldonax. I know what stirs in you which you would hide from all of us. I feel your hatred for the Mandalorian and the desire for revenge. I know that this mission has nothing to do with the Empire. 
It is all about proving that Dao Scriver was wrong to dismiss you by not killing you. You yearn to turn the tables on him, to defeat him in turn, and then kill him. That is all you desire. That is what fills your heart. An icy smile spread across Darth Howell's face. She braced herself to receive the punishment she deserved. Instead, he said, I approve. The invisible hand gripping Axe from head to foot relaxed. My lord? You have demonstrated to me that you are a true servant of the dark side, Eldon Axe. I endorse your plans, and I advise my colleagues on the council to do the same. Relief swept through Axe. Coming so soon after her certainty that she was about to die, it made her feel lightheaded. Thank you, my lord. Darth Howell raised a hand for silence. I have just one clarification to make. Axe's master looked up at him. Yes, my lord. The issue at hand is not the security of the Empire. There are a dozen sources from which Dao Scriver could have learned the girl's heritage, including and not to be forgotten, the girl's mother herself. The issue is not even the world you hope to bring us, although naturally that would be a significant boon to our preparations for war. No, Darth Kratos, the issue is defiance. Fifteen years ago, Lima Zandret made a stand against the Sith and escaped the punishment that was rightly hers. Now comes this opportunity to correct that oversight. We must take it in order to demonstrate to all that our strength has only increased and that we never forgive. The Council greeted this pronouncement with a murmur of approval. Some eyes glanced at the hollow projector in the center of the room, as though even the absence of the Emperor's image was enough to inspire respect and fear. Darth Kratos bowed low. You have my word, my lords, that an example will be made of the girl's rebellious kin. Their names will be expunged from history, except as an example to those who would defy us. Darth Howell didn't look at Darth Kratos. His gaze remained firmly fixed on Axe. I understand, Axe told him. And she did. This was a test of loyalty as much as it was a mission to punish forgotten traitors. Being a Sith was not just about feeling hatred and anger. It was finding a way to focus those feelings toward the attainment of mastery. Axe said she had forgotten her mother and held her no affection. But when Lima Zandrit stood before her and the time came to deliver her rightful punishment, could Axe be the one to administer it? She swore that she would. There was no affection in her bones for anyone, not even her master. She stood in silent obedience as Darth Kratos confirmed the details of his plan. The Empire would provide him with half a division to command as he saw fit. They would await word from Axe on Hatta before moving on to their final destination. An Imperial envoy would be sent to provide cover for Axe, but that person would play no significant role in the affair. 
he or she would simply assure to Sabarish that the emperor wasn't suspiciously disinterested in the auction of her prize. Your ambitions are plain to us, Darth Kratos, Darth Howell told him. Deliver us this world, and you will be rewarded. With one last overlong bow, Darth Kratos took his leave of the council, and his apprentice followed respectfully two paces behind. Only when they were in the shuttle did he turn on her. His slender staff clicked open lengthways at one end, and the other retracted, forming the cross pieces and handle of his blood-red lightsaber. It stabbed at her face, stopping just short of her skin, and she froze. You surprised me in there, he said in a deceptively quiet voice. Don't ever surprise me again. She didn't say, You're a fool. You mishandled the whole thing. If you'd let me talk to you beforehand, instead of raging about my inability to remember anything, I could have told you in advance. Instead of betraying you, I saved you and our plan from being dismissed out of hand. I will not, Master, was all she said. Satisfied with her compliance, Darth Kratos deactivated his lightsaber and stepped away. Truce, she thought. For now. With a grunt, he settled back to ride out the trip from Korriban back to Draman Kos, and from there to Hutta, and the attainment of all their dreams. The huts have created quite a stir said Supreme Commander Stantors, leaning back in his chair and tapping one finger on his desk. I've received four senatorial inquiries overnight, and I expect more during the day. Whether this auction is a scam or not, we'll have to do something about it now. Ula said, We can't be seen to be sitting on our hands, sir. Obedience and assurance, that was all the Supreme Commander wanted from his aides. A true meritocracy, however, would have demanded much more from its citizens. Indeed not, Stantors exclaimed. When every world of the Republic, from the outlying settlements to the core itself, is crying poverty, to let a possible source of resources slip through our fingers would be a public relations disaster, not to mention a setback for galactic security. When the Mandalorians are involved, said another aide, it's often a security issue. Indeed. And that's why I've decided to pursue this publicly and politically, to ensure that it can't come back on us later. The martial rhythm of the Supreme Commander's tapping put Ula on edge. Give it a rest, he wanted to yell at them. It's a smokescreen, a distraction for the real issue. The Cold War you're losing. The Huts are exploiting and feeding your paranoia at the very same time. Don't you see how gullible this makes you all look? So wound up was he in his internal dialogue that he almost didn't hear the Supreme Commander's next words. That's why I've decided to send you, Ula, to Hutta as an official envoy of the Republic. Ula's thoughts hit the roadblock of that pronouncement and formed a five-skylane pileup. You... what, sir? I need someone to investigate and, if necessary, negotiate on our behalf. Not someone senior. We don't want the Huts thinking we're too interested. Not someone from the military, either, since this is a political matter. We need someone informed and dedicated, 
and the reports you filed last night indicate that you are nothing if not both. Ula, I want you on the first available shuttle. The other aide stared at him with undisguised envy as Ula tried to find a way out of the situation. I'm flattered, sir, but... Your portfolios are already full, I know, but there's nothing you can't delegate. And if it's security you're worried about, I've requisitioned a full detail. We can't afford to lose someone of your abilities, Ula. Ula swallowed. Stantors had shot down his two major objections in little more than one breath. While it was indeed pleasing that the Supreme Commander afforded him such trust, what use was he as an informer in the wrong sector of the galaxy? He needed to be here, in the office, not mucking around with filthy huts and potentially coming under fire. The gang war that had led to Stantor's hearing about the Cinzia would be just a minor skirmish if the ship's home was as valuable as the hut said it was. Of that, Ula was certain, and he was an informer, not a soldier, for a reason. He liked fighting as little as he liked being in the spotlight. He simply wasn't trained for that kind of thing. There seemed to be no way to escape it, though, so he accepted with all the grace he could muster. Excellent! I know I can rely on you, Ula. Off the record, I'll expect you to keep a sharp eye out for Jedi, of course. Satil Shan says she'll take no official action, but I don't trust her. You know the major players, don't you? You see one of them, you'll let me know. Ula nodded. I will, sir. And if there's any substance to the Hut's claims, report immediately. I'll have a fleet on standing orders to offer the world protection from the Empire. Yes, sir. Like anyone with any political savvy, Ula knew that protection was something many worlds simply did not want, for fear of the so-called protectors pillaging natural resources and talent. Also, the mere presence of a Republic cruiser let alone a Jedi, was likely to draw the wrath of the Sith, who could be even worse. What if it's nothing? Then we've lost nothing, and you get to keep your promotion. Stentor stood and held out his hand. I'm elevating you to seed your aid, effective immediately, and appointing you as acting envoy to the Barish cartel. Congratulations, Ula. Ula shook the Supreme Commander's hand, but barely registered the soldierly crush of the strong Duro's fingers. Numb from head to foot, he could barely accept what had just happened. The best he could manage was to find ways to profit from it. As his former colleagues pressed in to offer their congratulations, he realized that this put him in an ideal position to make sure that the Republic didn't gain from the Hut's offer. He could downplay the importance of any information he discovered, even actively interfere with the auction if it came to that. Whatever the Huts had, the Republic wouldn't get access to it. And then there was the Republic fleet that awaited the outcome of his investigation. If he could send them on a fruitless quest to an empty sector of the galaxy, that could help the Empire in a dozen tangible ways. That the Supreme Commander of the Republic's military forces and parts of the Senate were absorbed in this unfolding drama was also useful. What had started as a minor curiosity could end up playing a deciding role in the conflict, if he was careful. When do you want me to leave, sir? Immediately. Your security detail is waiting. Thank you, sir. Ula swallowed his nervousness, made his farewells, 
and exited the room. He didn't get very far. In the hallway outside the Supreme Commander's suite of offices, a squad of six soldiers awaited him. They wore smart service dress uniforms and saluted on sight of him. Sergeant Roban Patanen, the lead soldier introduced himself. We are your escort, Envoy V.E. Patanen was swarthy and muscular, and though he was as tall as Ula, he loomed as though from a great height. Thank you, Sergeant Patanen. I'll be grateful for your protection on Hutta. What's the arrangement? Shall we rendezvous at the appropriate spaceport when the shuttle is ready? Shuttle departs in one hour, sir. Then I'd better get moving, hadn't I? He moved off along the corridor, and the squad fell into formation around him. He stopped, and they stopped too. Where are you going? He asked Patanen. Escorting you to diplomatic supplies, sir. That's not where I'm going. I need to swing by my apartment to pack my bag, and I'm sure I can manage that on my own. Negative, sir. All off-world necessities are provided by diplomatic supplies. But my clothes... Not required, sir. Ceremonial attire is being tailored to your measurements as we speak. Ula had never seen this side of the Republic administration at work. It was surprisingly and irritatingly efficient. I have a pet vorpack, he said, improvising wildly. If I leave it alone, it'll die. Not to worry, sir. Provide us with your key and I'll have it cared for. No, no, that's not necessary. Ula ran a hand through his hair. Both packing a bag and his imaginary pet were covers for his real intention. He wanted to send a message from his apartment to his Imperial masters, informing them of this sudden development. Otherwise, they might worry at his silence. Luckily, he had prepared for every contingency. Pulling his comlink out of his pocket, he said, I'll call a neighbor. She'll look after it. Give me a moment. He walked a short distance from Patanen and placed a quick call. The neighbor was imaginary, too, but the number was real. It led to an automated message service that was regularly checked by Watcher 3's network of agents on Coruscant. After the tone, he recorded his name and ordered two innocuous dishes from a non-existent menu. The name of the first dish contained nine syllables, the second thirteen, and those numbers allowed Ula's real message to be decoded from stock phrases every Imperial operative knew by heart. He'd experienced an unplanned interruption and would re-establish contact as soon as possible. At least via the voice drop, his abbreviated message would get through. Who knew when he would find an opportunity to send another? That thought triggered a whole new wave of trepidation. Bad enough to be in the spotlight, but to be completely cut off from his chain of command was even worse. He could feel his hands beginning to tremble, and to hide that he stuffed them with his comlink into his pockets. All right, he said, turning back to the attentive Sergeant Patanen and beaming the brightest smile he could manage. I'm all yours. Smoothly falling into formation around him, they marched him off to be outfitted for his new role. Holy moly, that was incredible. Part two has left me spellbound, completely immersed in the captivating story. The Star Wars universe unveils another epic tapestry that has left me feeling like a bantha in a bathtub. And the anticipation for what lies ahead is parable. But before we can move on to the next part, we gotta finish off this episode. So let's uncover the court of this part. 
a nugget of wisdom that will resonate with your very soul. And it comes to us from Wayne Dreyer. He said, the only thing that can stop you from achieving your goals is you. This quote is a reminder that we are the only ones that can limit our own potential. There's many reasons why we might hold ourselves back from achieving our goals. We might be afraid of failure. We might be afraid of success. We might be afraid of change. We might be afraid of what others might think. Whatever the reason, it is important to remember that we are the only ones that can control our own destiny. We are the only ones who can choose to take action or give up. If we want to achieve our goals, we need to believe in ourselves. We need to be willing to take risks. We need to be willing to fail. And we need to be willing to keep going, no matter what. Remember, the only thing that can stop you from achieving your goals is you. So believe in yourself, take actions, and never give up. Now, I think that's all I have for today. I hope you enjoyed part two of Federal Alliance as much as I did. And I hope you will join me next time for more far, far away adventures. Until then, may the force be with you. Thank you for listening to Star Wars Audio Archives. Join us next time for more Star Wars adventures. If you would like to listen to other episodes of the show, you can follow us on your favorite podcast directory. If you enjoyed the show, we would greatly appreciate a five-star review. Once again, thank you for listening, and may the Force be with you. Sway was created by Keen Eye Shed and is a production of Pick Film Media. This show was produced by Quentin McDaniel and was distributed by Swaycast Network. Star Wars The Old Republic's Fatal Alliance was read to you by Jason Odega. Sound designed by Theodore Thompson. I am your host, Kyle, and we will see you next time in a galaxy far, far away. <laughs>